Before we get started with our, the, our service, um, I just did want to take a few minutes again to speak about the virus that has now arrived in Westchester County. Um, Friday morning I, or Friday evening, I discovered that there's a case in Somers now where I live. So you can imagine there's a lot of um, increasing anxiety right, and worry. So I want to take the time to reiterate uh, that the best sources of information are generally your health departments and not your news and opinion columns sometimes. <laughs> Um, and again, we are in, in here in the congregation, we are in a maintaining health phase. So do what you can as any illness would sweep through your community. So take precautions like washing your hands often and well. Uh, stay home if you're sick. This is not a time to tough it out and go to, go to work because you've, you don't feel that sick yet. And the same for church. Um, common sense things like covering your mouth using tissues, throwing them away, avoiding t touching your eyes and mouth and nose as much as you can, and being careful around uh, things like a coffee hour where we have utensils and, and things like this being passed around. Just be cognizant and use your best hygiene like you would in your own home. Continue to maintain uh, good sleep patterns if you have them, <laughs> and if you don't, this would be a good time to acquire some. <laughs> And other things that reduce your stress. And uh, I know that community and being connected to other people is a big part of reducing that stress, staying connected, staying informed. So keep that up. Um, our board will be meeting uh, tomorrow evening to discuss, and on our agenda, we, of course, will be discussing what measures we might need to take or might choose to take. You've been noticing some slight changes, like last week we... Uh, dispensed with congregational uh, hugs and handshakes to try out fist bumps and elbow bumps and things like that. This week we're going to try something different also and not pass around the microphone um, during joys and sorrows. So we're going to have to play that by ear and see how it works. We may, as, may have one person hold the microphone and then disinfect it. So those are the kind of things that are on our mind. Do be assured that if the county or state should issue any kind of a quarantine order or shut down all religious services or something of that nature, that we are thinking about how we can keep all of us connected and keep a sense of meeting on a regular basis going. What might that look like? How do we make sure that everyone's um, wishes are heard and hopefully honored? And how do we have people involved and keep the connection? So. With that said, welcome. Let's take a few, oh, the other thing is, please do reach out to me. One of the things that I don't know is who among us is in what type of uh, situations or risk categories. I can pretty much tell who's over the age of 70 or even 60, I can come close, you know? But I don't know if you have a suppressed immune system or if you're particularly susceptible to respiratory illnesses, or if you're having financial hardship and can't stock up on medicines and grocery. These are the kind of things that's important to cue me in on so that we can be there for you in a way that's most supportive and that most honors our religious community and a sense of mutual community and mutual support. And now, 
Let's switch over as our candles are lit by Josh and Ellen. The words for our order of service are written by the Reverend Andy Pakula, who was a minister of New Unity in London, a Unitarian congregation which calls itself a non-religious church. And he is an out and proud atheist Unitarian minister in England. He writes, we arrive together here, travelers on life's journey, seekers of meaning, of love, of healing, of justice, of truth. The journey is long, and joy and woe accompany us at every step. None is born that does not die. None feels pleasure that does not also feel pain. The tear has not yet dried on the cheek, but the lips curve sweetly in a smile. Numerous are our origins, our paths, and our destinations. And yet, happily, our ways have joined together here today. Spirit of life, source of love, may our joining be a blessing. May it bring comfort to those who are in pain. May it bring hope to those who are in despair. May it bring peace to those who tremble in fear. May it bring wisdom and guidance for our journeys. And though this joining may be just for a moment in time, the moment is all we can ever be certain of. May we embrace this and every instant of our lives. Come, let us worship together. As I light our chalice, which is a symbol of our Unitarian Universalist heritage, please join in singing the response that you find in your order of service. We are bound together here not by dogma or creed, but by the promises we make to one another reflected in our covenant. Please join me in reciting our affirmation. 
Love is the spirit of this fellowship, this dark great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. And now let us rise in body and or spirit to sing together, come sing a song with me. Number 346 in your gray hymnals. You. Please be seated. Thank you, thank you. It is our tradition to extend greetings and I invite you to be creative again and try not to use your hands, your faces, and uh, re reach out in other creative ways to extend your greetings.
You guys are getting good at this. <laughs> I saw a, a uh, somebody posted something funny, of course, among the minister's group, because every now and then we need to laugh a little in one of the Facebook groups. And there's a video that's come out of Italy. I will try to find the name of it. It's very, very humorous. It's the uh, t stereotypical Italian grandmother, except she really is the, the Italian grandmother. And for the greetings and talking about this, she goes into winking in a very exaggerated fashion. So maybe we'll try that sometime, too. It's really very funny. <laughs> so our story today is the story of the farmer's luck. Some of you may know this as a Taoist tale. I've also heard it referred to as a Zen Buddhist tale. Sometimes the, the language will uh, shift a little bit. But it's basically the same story. So once upon a time, there was an elderly, hardworking Chinese farmer and his son, his only son, his only child, who helped him on the farm. And they had just one single horse. And they used the horse for everything, to plow the field, to plant the seeds, to grow the crops, and take the crops to market. It was essential to their livelihood. And one morning, the horse, being horses, being a horse, rather, broke through the fence and ran off into the woods. And the neighbors heard about it, and they came and they said, oh, my goodness, your only horse has run away, and just before the planting season, how will you manage? Oh, this is so unfortunate. This is bad luck. And the farmer replied, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? A few days later, the farmer's horse returned, along with several wild horses. The neighbors are, my goodness, now you've got three, four horses here. Oh, you can farm much faster, and maybe you can even buy more land and plant more crops and earn money, and someday you'll be a really rich man. Ooh, this is good luck. The wise farmer said, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? So those horses being wild had to be tamed, and the next morning the farmer went out to work with the horses and tamed them. And while he was trying to get on to one of them, he fell and broke his leg, just before the time to plant the fields. The neighbors arrive again. Oh my goodness, how awful. Now your son will not be able to help plant the field. This is really unfortunate. This is bad luck. And the farmer said, Good luck, bad luck, who's to say? Now, the 
field got planted, the sun was recuperating, getting better. The horses eventually were tamed. And a few days later, the king's men in the kingdom started to visit each village. They had started a war with the neighboring kingdom, and they were going around enlisting the eldest sons from every family to join the army. And when they came to the farmer's house, they saw this son with the broken leg and said, well, clearly, he won't do, and went away. The neighbors came by with tears in their eyes. Many of their sons had been recruited away. And they said, oh, your son breaking his leg was really fortunate. He's the only one who wasn't taken. What a stroke of good luck. And the farmer calmly replied, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? And so, Every single time that the neighbors thought something was good luck, it turned out to be bad luck. And every single time they thought something was bad luck, it turned out to be good luck. I wonder if you've ever had similar experience in your life. Something you really thought was bad turned out to be a blessing. Or vice versa. And what it was like for you to go through that emotional roller coaster of being happy and then sad and happy and sad and happy and sad and happy and sad. So the moral of the story is that as human beings, we naturally have a tendency to interpret any event and all events as good and bad, you know, black and white, good and bad, very binary. However, most events, like this farmer discovered, are beyond our control. And there's nothing that we can do about them except accepting them and moving on. And sometimes adding our own interpretation and our emotional drama into the mix is counterproductive and stops us from moving forward. Good story, bad story. <laughs> Who's to say? <laughs> Let us sing our children out to their class. Our talk, yeah.
Our reading today is a poem by Mary Oliver entitled Heavy. That time I thought I could not go any closer to grief without dying. I went closer and I did not die. Surely God had his hand in this as well as friends. Still, I was bent and my laughter as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. Then said my friend Daniel, brave even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it, books, bricks, grief. It's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot and would not put it down. So I went practicing. Have you noticed? Have you heard the laughter that comes now and again from my startled mouth? How I linger to admire, admire, admire the things of this world that are kind and maybe also troubled. Roses in the wind, the sea geese on the steep waves, a love to which there is no reply. The words of Mary Oliver. Life this day and any day can and will bring us many changes and challenges that seem heavy. Times when good luck seems to become bad luck or bad luck seems to become good luck. Times when we are simply left wondering Who's to say? We face trauma, disappointment, and difficulty in our personal lives and in the larger, more public spheres of our society and, of course, within this congregation. I mean, just witness the challenges of these times and this week in particular. The electoral cycle. Some disappointment, maybe? I shed a tear this week for the first time on reading the news that Elizabeth Warren, et cetera, right, was suspending her campaign. And the girls might have to wait four more years. We have the spread of the corona, coronavirus to our area, some fear there. Threat of climate change, that's an enormous and difficult problem. And I haven't even mentioned and may not even know about what's going on in your own personal lives of a more private matter. And no doubt we will tell stories someday about how we survived this or that challenge or this or that change or situation or series of events. 
And though our stories will be unique and personalized and varied, they are likely to illustrate one or more of the points that I want to share with you today. Now I'm going to confess this is drawn heavily from a book called Weathering the Storm, Simple Strategies for Being Peaceful and Prepared. I mean, with a title like that, how could you not pick it up, right? And I came across this title when I was considering taking a class called Resilience for Spiritual Leaders at Hartford Seminary that's going on right now. And as much as I love the classroom setting and studying, I took a pass on this one because, well, there's just too much on my plate already. However, on the reading list, I noticed that this book was a required reading, and it was authored by the teacher of the class, whose name is Tracy Mur Muska. She's an ordained Presbyterian pastor and a board-certified interfaith chaplain. And she works as a university chaplain at Wesleyan University. Before becoming a minister, she was a veteran of the Coast Guard, has some interesting stories to tell there, a wife and a mother. I would describe her book as part memoir, part applied world religions. She really brings in that interfaith perspective and part sort of research-based self-help psychological writing. It's a book that lends itself to being picked up and put down with ease as you work through a chapter at a time. But the author does ask you to become engaged. She poses questions to ponder and suggests activities to consider at the end of each chapter. It's a book I commend to you if you like these sorts of things. And let's face it, if it turns out that you're going to be housebound for a little while, we don't know, or you simply need a counterbalance to taking in even more disturbing news or heavy reading, you could do worse than to order this online and settle in for a read and some reflection and writing. But then, like I said, who's to say? Might not be your cup of tea, but it was mine. So the author looks at resilience and how we can cultivate what she calls the seven P's of resilience. P like Peter or P like seven principles. So she defines resilience as a simple set of characteristics that you can continuously cultivate to enable you to be emotionally, cognitively, and spiritually prepared for and transformed by trauma, disappointment, and difficulty. She points out that resilience is not an inborn genetic trait. It's not about fixing a particular situation or problem. And it's not something we achieve once and then we're, we're done and we have it for life. She likes to think about cultivating resilience not as a burden but as a choice and an opportunity, one that helps us reap lifelong benefits, one that helps us face and take sensible risk with more confidence and less fear. One that helps us endure challenges and ultimately be more successful in our personal and professional lives and become more connected to and responsive to the other people in our lives. That's a tall order. The author sets out her seven Ps, people, positivity, pliability, problem-solving, purpose, piety, that's a word we don't hear too much anymore, and perseverance. So 
I'm going to go through them one at a time, and I'm asking you to listen for what resonates for you, what rings true for you in your life experience. Hi. People, not surprising. We know that having strong social connections is good for our health and our wellness, and that social isolation and loneliness are risk factors for physical and social well-being. We're not resilient if we do not have well-being. We may encounter several kinds of barriers to developing social connections personally. Sometimes we carry with, carry with us a fear or vulnerability about exposing ourselves and having people see our imperfections or dysfunctional family or sorrow. Sometimes we're, we're afraid of being perceived as being too needy if we reveal too much of ourselves. Some of the things that work against developing social connections in our society are trends like postponing marriage and family. So the, the network is shrinking in some ways. Our decreasing level of civic and community involvement. And then there are also this physiological things such as um, decreasing empathy and increasing depression, which can impact the ability to establish connections. She points to the importance of having people in our lives who we can confess anything to and expect their unconditional love to continue. That is critical, even if it's only one person. It can be a family member, a friend. It can be a professional therapist or counselor. It can even be our pets, seriously. But in all these relationships, communication is the key point. And we know that communication can be very active or can be very passive. Sometimes we can observe that somebody is suffering and we can observe if they are open to receiving help or assistance or connection. Sometimes suffering is private or maybe hidden and we need to take the initiative to reach out and articulate our needs and ask for support. And that's why I keep harping on that particular message right now, is to reach out and let us know, let me know what your needs are. We also establish resilience through having strong connections with communities. And communities can be anything going almost, religious communities, secular communities, being involved in an activist group or an advocacy group, mutual support groups, support and hobbies and teams. All these are different ways of having communities. And of course, community is a very popular theme in religious and spiritual traditions. In the Buddhism, we have the Sangha. Taking refuge in the Sangha means that we find safety and strength in the fellow walkers of the path. And communities also offer us the opportunity to be mentors or mentees. And both of those roles build resilience as people share expertise. Sometimes we take on mentors of a more virtual nature, let's say, maybe true people or who are deceased or maybe fictional characters. The second P that she lays out is positivity. The intention to focus on things in our lives that are growing well and going well and to notice the benefit and blessings in our circumstances and celebrate them. There are lots and lots of religious teachings on this topic. 
I like the one from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monk, who writes that a good practitioner knows how to keep the negative seeds here in the storehouse consciousness and tries by his practice to help the positive seeds to manifest. If the positive seeds continue to manifest here, the negative seeds become smaller and smaller and smaller and less important. And when they are tiny, not important, it's difficult for them to manifest. Now, I know that positivity has gotten a lot of bad rap in some circles, but there really are barriers that we need to pay attention to in our lives. And one is that very often we weigh negative comments more heavily than positive ones. That's probably a self-protective mechanism and an instinctual thing, always scanning for danger. But do we need to always be comparing ourselves to others and holding ourselves to impossible standards? Perhaps not. Sometimes we've internalized negative comments from our upbringing, from people that we were taught to trust and respect, parents, teachers, relatives, colleagues. So we have to be intentional about learning to appreciate and love ourselves. We have to minimize and quiet our inner critics, all that negative self-talk. I wonder if any of you have ever participated in an exercise in a group setting or even alone where you ask yourself, what is the most negative thing that you say to yourself most often? I've seen it done where everybody writes this on a slip of paper. The slips are collected, and then they are read aloud for the group, one after the other. And hearing all those destructive and harmful phrases is excruciating, just excruciating. Of course, you would need to follow that with a round of saying positive things to sort of right the balance. We can cultivate positivity in our view of other people by cultivating empathy, by choosing to choose love and giving others the benefit of a doubt, and being generous with our forgiveness. The golden rule. And to do that, forgiveness is essential. Because it's hard to be positive if we are carrying around toxic anger or unresolved betrayal or just miffed with somebody. Now, one of the finest teachers in this area has been the Presbyterian minister that we know as Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. He said, I believe that appreciation is a holy thing, that when we look for what's best in the person we happen to be with at the moment, we're doing what God does. So, in loving and appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something truly sacred. Now, I don't share all of his beliefs, but every time I read that or even say that, I get chills because that really sinks in for me. How many of you have seen the new movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, where Tom Hanks portrays Fred Rogers? Okay. If you haven't seen it, you must go. I have to confess that I went Christmas Eve to see it because I didn't have any family here. And it was sold out, so I said, darn. So I went Christmas Day. <laughs> and I sat in the front of the movie theater so that I had to, there weren't that many people. I had to sense that it was a private viewing almost. And I sat there and I thought, wow, I'm being ministered to. There is a scene in the movie where he is in a Chinese restaurant in Pittsburgh where he lives. 
and he is being interviewed by a very cynical reporter for a magazine piece. This particular reporter has a lot of anger in him uh, because he was felt abandoned by a very tough father. And so Mr. Rogers is, who isn't Mr. Rogers, he's Fred Rogers, Reverend Fred Rogers then, is counseling him to move past his rage and disappointment. And he tells him that, yes, it's painful, but you know your father inadvertently helped you know right from wrong and helped you be the loving father that you are today. Say, good father, bad father, who's to say? And then comes a moment in the film that is just amazing. He looks him in the eye, and before they start to eat their meal, they're sitting in a diner-type restaurant. Let's take a minute to think of all the people in our lives who have loved us into being. And he asks the reporter to close his eyes, and he tells him, I'll watch the clock. And that is what happens for the next minute in the movie. It's a cinematic feat to sit in silence in a movie for one minute. So you see that some of the ways to bring positivity into our view of others may not always be easy or self-evident. Okay, all bad, all good. Who's to say? Well, sometimes it's yours to say. And how we look at our circumstances in the past and the present and the future are all opportunities to practice positivity. We know that in looking backwards that bad experiences have longer lasting and more intense consequences on us than good ones. So to undo that, sometimes we can do things like trying to recall and reminisce positive memories with the same associated characters. In the present, we can consciously decide to choose positivity. Many of you know the name Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor. He wrote that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. We can also choose to discover and celebrate gratitude. Another Holocaust survivor, Eli Wiesel, a Jewish scholar, wrote, when a person doesn't have gratitude, something is missing in his or her humanity. A person, cannot, a person can almost be defined by his or her attitude toward gratitude. And bringing positivity into our view of future circumstances can sometimes be challenging, especially if we are prone to worrying which can be futile and unproductive. There is a study that says that 8% of what we worry about actually happens. And of that, half of those things, so 4% of the total, were beyond our control anyway. So the next time you are wrapped in a spiral of worry, hmm, which percent? 4%? 96%. The Dalai Lama is pretty straightforward. He says, if a problem is fixable, a situation is such that you can do something about it, then there is no need to worry. If it's not fixable, then there is no help in worrying. There is no benefit whatsoever in worrying. Let's 
something I need to remind myself of occasionally. They're the motivational speaker, Simon Sinek, who on this topic of cultivating uh, optimism and pessimism said, people who wonder if the glass is half empty or half full miss the point. The point is that the glass is refillable. More deposits can be made to those emotional bank accounts we carry around. The third P is pliability. The Confucian Lao Tse says, whatever is flexible and flowing will tend to grow. Whatever is rigid and blocked will atrophy and die. This is something that we can consider anytime we're encountering change. Are we being flexible and open-minded? Do we have the ability to adapt and reassess and adjust? Do we have the ability to reduce conflict by finding common ground and shared goals? Now, pliability is not about compromising what we believe or giving up or flip-flopping. But it is about acknowledging a new reality and living into the new reality. Acknowledging and grieving what has been lost or what has changed. Many of you know Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer. This captures the essence. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And so like the farmer in our tale, it can also be helpful to reserve judgment of ourselves and our circumstances and to manage our anxiety by resisting all that what, why me and what if kind of thinking. And if only I had. Or next time I can do it more perfectly and letting that pull us down. We need to learn to embrace hope with the spirit of openness and optimism, always believing that there is a possibility of transformation. I like the Buddhist saying that says, no mud, no lotus. Right? Some people use compost metaphors. No compost, no sprout. The fourth P that the author points out is problem solving. Problem-solving skills have been shown by research to be associated with increased resilience, so much so that there is now a model of problem-solving therapy that is being used to treat depression and anxiety. Problems and solving problems is a ripe theme in religious and secular sources. Topic of leaders in all settings, scientists, government, judiciary settings, business, military, congregational leaders and consultants. This is where creativity, self-awareness, and determination are helpful so that we can better identify our goals, define a problem in objective and realistic language, and see that problem as ultimately solvable. Someone likes to remind me of Thomas Edison, an inventor with over 1,000 patents, who says, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> right? It's perspective. And our problem solving also includes doing research with an open mind, being confident that there's a, there's a solution out there, and tapping into the wisdom and expertise of others. Brainstorming and making a plan, setting SMART goals, 
and logical strategies, and then assessing the outcomes afterwards. Did we achieve our goal? Were they the right ones for us? What adjustment do we need to make? The fifth P the author points to is purpose. You know, what are we meant to do and who are we meant to be in life? And how are we meant to serve? Having a strong sense of purpose helps us withstand pain and endure adversity and be positively transformed by hardship or trauma. The author in her book lifts up the experience and testimony, if you will, of the late Senator John McCain and his time being a prisoner of war during Viet Vietnam. Now, sometimes people get thrown by this, what is your purpose? So if you get stumped on that question, it's really very simple. How do you want to be remembered by others? No. Our sense of purpose can be uh, influenced by our sense of identity, our individual and collective identity. And our collective identity is here with, oops, sorry, here with us too in the congregation. It's imagined and it's concrete and it's fluid and relational, okay? And each of us are bringing several identities into this mix. So for here, we have the opportunity to ponder a collective sense of purpose and always being cognizant of what it is that we need to collectively survive and thrive. The sixth P is piety. And she chose this word even though it's not used much these days because she wanted to encompass the breadth of spiritual or religious communities and practices and beliefs that help us become more resilient. She noticed that Brene Brown, who was a psychologist, researcher, and author of the book Rising Strong, uh, said that getting back on our feet does not require religion, theology, or doctrine. However, without exception, the concept of spirituality emerges from my data as a critical component of resilience and overcoming struggle. We know that people who are religiously involved have better mental and physical health indicators than people who are not, right? And when you look at, look at our gathering and what it offers us, it offers us social connection, it offers us routine, spiritual and religious beliefs and rituals, inspirational stories, we hope, sense of connection, a sense of purpose, a place to cultivate hope. Many of us engage in spiritual or religious practices which help us build our resilience by connecting with things larger than ourselves and improving our own emotional centeredness. There are lots of practices out there. For many people, prayer is where it's at. And they have a deep trust in prayer's ability to improve mental and physical health, even though the research can be conflicting and inconclusive. So I say, if prayer works for you, and as if this is what brings you comfort and hope, and helps you feel more connected with the universe, and helps you recognize and express gratitude, or helps you acknowledge wrongdoing and ask for forgiveness for yourself or others, and increases your self-study, well then, who's to say? Do what worked for you. 
Meditation is another spiritual practice that has been shown to foster resilience. Many of you will recall the story of the 12 young soccer players and their coach who were trapped in a flooded cave in Thailand for over two weeks. I forget what year that was. My memory's a little foggy. But that coach had spent his boyhood in a Buddhist monastery and had been well-trained in the practice of meditation and had maintained his practice. And he taught those boys meditation in the circumstances in which they were. And it kept them calm and alive. I think that's a powerful illustration. Many other people find great comfort and belief and sources of resilience in their particular religious beliefs, whether they believe in a god or divine uh, creator type, um, referencing holy writings. For others of this, the sources and inspirations may be more secular, poetry. All of these things help us to release feelings of fear and hopelessness and find peace. The author's seventh P is perseverance. The continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition, including, uh, sorry, uh, according to the dictionary. Some people think of perseverance as grit and sticking to it. Or I like to say, nevertheless, she persisted. That's perseverance. It's a theme that we also find in many religious and spiritual traditions because all of these traditions recognize the unavoidability of suffering and celebrate in one way or another the spirit of perseverance that is required to not only endure but to thrive. To persevere, we need mental endurance, and we also need physical endurance. So we need good mental habits, and we need good physical habits. We know that we need exercise and sufficient sleep. Let me repeat that for myself. We need exercise and sufficient sleep. <laughs> and we need to practice self-care. And now self-care is another one of those, those terms out there that some people think is a little woo-woo or frou-frou or, oh, please, bubble bath bombs, you know. <laughs> Isn't that a luxury? But the author says that self-care is the act of doing what we need to sustain our bodies, minds, and spirits, not for the purpose of self-indulgence or superficial pleasure, but for the purpose of continuing the fight for survival and the pursuit of justice. So be able to continue doing what it is that you are called to do, your purpose in life. So to recap, these are the kind of characteristics that you, we are being urged to continuously cultivate to help us withstand and be transformed by trauma or difficulty or disappointment. So listen for which ones of these give you the most energy and make you the most excited. What makes the most relevance to your life? What seems most relevant to the challenges that we face as a congregation? People, positivity, pliability, problem solving, purpose, piety, perseverance. These are the characteristics that help build resilience, but it doesn't happen overnight. And it doesn't happen the same way for me or for you or for you or for you. And it doesn't happen the same way in this congregation or another congregation. So take some time to reflect on how you might cultivate resilience in your daily life. 
And also, what kind of practices and strategies might we embrace here to become a more resilient faith community at a time of vast societal change when there truly are so many factors beyond our control? What redirecting might be necessary and what does our collective wisdom tell us to do? I wonder exactly what the role is for faith in the world and for congregations like ours in creating hubs of resilience for ourselves and others in our areas during these times. Times when we have a public health situation. Times when we have an electoral cycle full of strife. And times when we have a planet confronting climate change that tests the limits of resilience in every sense of the word. Good times, bad times, who's to say? In the spirit of emphasizing our first P, people, please join in singing number 1021 in our teal hymnal, Lean on Me. Oh, jeez. Thank you. We all have pain, we all have 
So let us now join our voices and sing our benediction to one another.